we figured, okay, this is going to be flash in the pan, you know, two or three or four or five years, and that'll be. And so when, it, you know, when we got to 20th anniversary, we were like, wow. <laughs> and it just kept getting bigger and bigger. Welcome to Living Legacies, a podcast that celebrates the voices and stories of individuals around the Pacific Northwest. Produced by Northwest Folklife and Jack Straw Cultural Center. In celebration of 50 years of Northwest Folklife, the Living Legacies series honors local culture bearers who inspire and perpetuate arts, culture, and traditions. Here is your host, Kelly Ferriar, Executive Artistic Director at Northwest Folklife. Today, we'll be speaking with Master Fiddler and co-founder of Northwest Folklife, Vivian Williams. Vivian is recognized as a master of Celtic, old-time, and bluegrass-style fiddling. She is also one of the very first folklorists of regional music through her recording company, Voyager Records. Alongside her late husband, Phil Williams, Vivian co-founded the Northwest Folklife Festival in 1971. I'm Vivian Williams, and my late husband, Phil Williams, was one of the principal founders of Folklife, but I've played there just about every year since it was founded. So in junior high school, I was in the junior high school orchestra, and it happened that the orchestra leader, you know, the teacher at, at the junior high school, was also my violin teacher. And um, one time we're playing, you know, the orchestra's rehearsing, and we did, you know, like Leroy Anderson sort of pop music kind of arrangements. That was one of the things we did a lot of in that orchestra. So he stops the orchestra and points at me and says, Vivian, stop tapping your foot. You look like some kind of old-time fiddler. <laughs> and I was mortified, mortified. So I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that was some kind of a Set and cosmic stone thing. at that moment. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he was the one who uh, sort of backhandedly started me on my fiddling career, even though I didn't have any idea of what was what fiddling meant at that time. Fiddling was something you see in a Bugs Bunny cartoon. You know, somebody's playing Turkey in the Straw or something. So I had some somewhat limited idea of of you know folk music and that there was such a thing. And um, so then I went to Reed College. And my first day at Reed, I met Phil. And Phil was thoroughly into the folk music revival because he was one year ahead of me. And the previous year, Pete Seeger had come to Reed and, you know, just sucked in everybody. I mean, he was such a charismatic mm. person. And so Phil immediately had to get a banjo, so he was totally into it. And so, you know, when I got to read, I just got totally sucked into that orbit, too, of folk music. But still, folk music for me was, you know, guitars and mandolins and banjos. I mean, I still didn't have a concept about fiddling. I had no idea. And then, let's see, Phil graduated a year ahead of me, but then when I graduated, we got married and moved to Seattle. And... Uh, I was finding out more about fiddling. And the bluegrass records I had heard, I didn't like the fiddling on it because it was just too harsh. I mean, all these, you know, bluesy, slidey double stops. It's like, you know, coming from a classical background, this was like, ooh, too weird. 
But I got hold of a LP record of it was Mike Seeger and his family. And on it, Mike plays a very simple little, um, like a kindergarten tune. It's old Molly hair. You know, it's dun da da da, dun da da dee, dun da 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 da. I mean, just absolutely nothing to it. And I heard that and I thought, well, that's kind of nice, you know, I, I could learn to do that. And meanwhile, Phil is trying to learn to play bluegrass banjo, so I got to do something in self-defense. And so I started playing fiddle, and then I started, you know, you, you, you learn to appreciate some of the weirder stuff. And then meanwhile, we had started going up to Darrington, and they did not have a fiddler for their band at the time because the only decent fiddler in the area had moved away. And they needed a fiddler to play with. And I wasn't any good, and I was, I was a woman. That was pretty weird. And I was this weird city girl, and I wore my hair funny, and, you know, I was very strange to them culturally, but they needed a fiddler. You know, what the heck? And uh, being, you know, nice, open-minded folks, they welcomed me, and they welcomed Phil. So... That absolutely turned our musical lives around. Plus, it turned our lives around anyway, because coming out of Reed College, that's really an academic ivory tower thing. You know, and these guys, I mean, let's face it, this is a bad word, but they're, they were hillbillies. Really, you know? It's like politically and cultural on, some, on the other end of, of two or three different spectra. But they were great people. They were wonderful. We just loved them dearly. Fred's wife, Alice, would, you know, feed us dinner, and sometimes we'd stay overnight, and it was just, it was a totally mind-blowing and eye-opening kind of thing. Now we can start tying stuff directly to folklore. Sure, of course. So the National... Park Service and the National Festival Association decided they wanted to have some festivals in the western part of the country. And so they thought Seattle would be a good area. And um, Mike Holmes had lived here for a, a long time. And, you know, we knew him. He was part of the scene. And he was then living in Washington, D.C. And he said, why don't you call Phil Williams, you know, because he might, you know, he would know people around the Seattle area. And the very first director for a short time, was John Burke. And John Burke had heard a rumor that Benny Thomason had moved from Texas. He, he was one of the hot Texas fiddlers. And that he had moved to somewhere in Washington State. And so he got a small amount of money. It was like $100 or something like that, some little grant to go find Benny Thomason. So he did find Benny Thomason, and Benny Thomason came to the first Folklife Festival. Now, the Old Time Fiddle Association that Phil had helped found had their own stage at Folklife. And so when Benny showed up, here was this whole room full of people that knew who he was, and he was totally amazed. So Folklife Festival actually kind of started 
his second career in fiddling because he had thought when he came to Washington, he just came to live with his son because he was retired and he was on disability because he had injured his back and this and that and the other thing. He figured his fiddling days were over when he left Texas, but no, not at all. So then he started going to Weezer and he started winning and he became a mentor to all sorts of people in, in this area. And he was a mentor to me, not for tunes. I don't think I ever learned a tune from him, but just spiritually. Because I just learned a lot of just good attitude. Like I had started getting sort of competitive and, you know, and, and that's not a comfortable place to be. And he just taught me that you don't have to be that way. You just do your thing and relax and share your music. I mean, it was pretty much the same attitude as the people in Darrington. And um, when Phil came up with the whole idea about folk life being a sharing thing and nobody gets paid and nobody has to pay to get in, and when you do, after do you do your performance or if you're selling, you know, your handiwork, you give information on how somebody else can get involved in that activity. If you were, you know, a quilter, you would tell people how to, you know, about the various quilting associations and how to learn how to do it. But that was a big thing. I mean, the idea is how are you going to learn that something exists until you get the opportunity to see it? And folk life was the opportunity to see it. It was an opportunity for, you know, to find out about the Darrington people because they would come down and perform at folk life. What do you think that the elements are or that has brought Northwest Folklife to C50? Well, part of it is the snowball effect because you hear something that you never heard of before and you get interested in it and so then you learn how to do it. And so then you start performing and then, you know, at the festival and at other venues, other people get to hear about it and say, well, this is cool. I'd like to learn how to do that. So that's definitely a mm -hmm. snowballing thing. So just more and more people uh, hear about it, and then the population is getting bigger anyway. So, <laughs> so the older generation dies off, and uh, there's plenty of young people taking up the slack. The music changes a little bit. I remember one of the big things was, okay, we can't have electric, you know. And that got dropped, which is fine. And uh, I went to, uh, one year they had, they featured young bands that had, you know, electric instruments. And there was one band in particular, I think they were from Portland, they were called Sasquatch. And I went to hear them because I was on the board at the time. And one of our board assignments was we were supposed to, you know, go around and listen to certain things at the festival and you evaluate them and, you know, is this new stage a good idea? And na, 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 na. And, you know, I had to have earplugs, but they were really good. I really liked their stuff, you know, and, and that's inevitably going to happen. People will change how they play the music, and that's fine. That's normal humanity. If, if we were stuck in some kind of a fossilized state where nothing changed, that would be icky, <laughs> boring. Thinking about 50 years, it's quite a legacy. How do you see folk life evolving? I don't have a clue. It could go anywhere. 
one thing that we're seeing, you know, I was just said a few minutes ago about how the new ways of approaching the music and, you know, new styles and, you know, going electric and all that stuff as some kind of progressive thing. But you also see a lot of the younger bands that are just super old-fashioned orthodox. So I don't know. I know it, it could go. Well, I, I, I was going to say it could go either way, but that's not right. It's going to go both ways. And the other thing is that with the Internet and particularly YouTube, people get exposed to incredible variety of stuff, which was not possible in the 70s. And so they can get interested in that, and they can learn how to do it, and then presumably they can bring something completely extraterrestrial to folk life. You know, it's okay. That's <laughs> <laughs> bound to happen. It probably already is. Because it used to be that first it had to be face-to-face. -face. You'd have to meet somebody in order to hear music. And then, you know, starting pretty early, radio and recordings came in, and so you could hear different kinds of music. But the internet has just, it's an explosion of communication that's comparable to radio and, and recordings. It's amazing. So who knows? It's, I think it's totally unpredictable what, what's going to eventually come in, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. It's like, wow, <laughs> who knows? When I said extraterrestrial, I was only halfway kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think it's important to pass on those stories and those songs? I think it's just part of what people do. They pass things on to younger people. And uh, that is just how human beings are. I mean, that's what makes humans human. The Living Legacies series is produced by Northwest Folklife and Jack Straw Cultural Center. This podcast was made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts, Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, For Culture, and individual contributors, with support from Jack Straw Cultural Center. To learn more, go to nwfolklife.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>